Welcome to GovCon Live. This is the first of a five-episode series focused on legal challenges construction contractors face in the federal procurement space. In this episode, Jackie Unger and Megan Lehman, members of Polero Maza's Government Contracts Group, reveal the keys to navigating DOT's Disadvantaged Business Enterprise Program for large and small construction contractors. Before we join the discussion, we have some business to handle. This podcast is for informational purposes only. We're not rendering legal advice. Your unique facts and circumstances could change the advice that would apply, and the rapidly changing nature of the law may cause the information in this podcast to become outdated. Let's get started. Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining us today. We're glad to have you here and to be able to talk to you about our webinar here on DOT's Disadvantaged Business Enterprise Program, What Large and Small Construction Contractors Need to Know. So diving right in with a little bit of background, this is me, Jackie Unger. I am counsel with Polero Maza and our government contracts practice group. And I generally represent government contractors across the board in a variety of areas they might need assistance with, from DBE issues to bid protests to regulatory compliance to contracts disputes. So I help out wherever I can in this area. And I'm joined today by my colleague, Megan Lehman. Megan, I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Thanks, Jackie. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Megan Lehman. I work with Jackie and our government contracts group. At Polaro Maza, I specialize in basically everything small business, maintaining compliance with all of SBA small business programs, but I also do a lot of work with the DBE program as well, as well as bid protests, teaming agreements, subcontracts, all that good stuff. Great. Thanks, Megan. A little bit about Polaro Maza for any of you who aren't familiar with our firm. We're a full-size, full-service business law firm that would serves as a strategic partner to government contractors and commercial businesses across the U.S. in numerous industries. We help out in a variety of areas, for instance, labor and employment, corporate, and litigation outside of our very broad government contracts practice group as well. If you aren't familiar with us and you're not on our mailing list, we encourage you to sign up. You can go to our website at polaromaza.com to subscribe to our various updates and mailing lists that we have. So check that out if you get a chance. So for today, what are we going to talk about? We have a lot of information to cover and not a lot of time. So the topics that we want to talk about are just giving a general overview of what the DBE program is for those of you who may not be very familiar with it, why you should care about the DBE program, how a firm gets certified as a DBE firm, what a firm needs to do to maintain its eligibility, what prime contractors' obligations are in using DBE subcontractors, how DBE participation is counted towards DBE goals, and some differences between DBE and SBA's mentor-protege and joint venture programs. First, we want to talk about what the DBE program is. And it's actually a federal program that's run through the U.S. Department of Transportation, which was created with a goal of leveling the playing field by providing disadvantaged business enterprises, or DBEs, a fair opportunity to compete for federally funded transportation contracts through the DOT's operating administrations, the Federal Highway Administration, the Federal Aviation Administration, and the Federal Transit Administration. So it's really an anti-discrimination program that is set up through the U.S. Department of Transportation, and it's implemented through state and local agencies that receive funding through U.S. DOT 
for their state and local contracts. In order to receive that funding, the recipients, who are the state and local agencies, must develop and implement a DBE program that conforms to the USDOT standard. So who are the players? Who are the different entities that are involved in the DBE program? So as I just mentioned, there's the U.S. Department of Transportation, who ultimately sets the regulations for how the DBE program is run and needs to be run by the state and local agencies. DOT provides oversight and enforcement of those regulations and the standards and also serves to hear appeals from DBE firms if they are denied or have their certifications removed. And it requires reporting from the state and local transportation agencies. So that's part of its oversight function as well. So for the state and local transportation agencies, those are the ones that are actually handling certification of DBE firms. So the certification comes from them. And they, they receive the applications, even though it's a uniform application, it, each state or local agency is the one who actually reviews the application and supporting documents. They will also set their own uh, DBE goals, whether it's an overall goal for the year for the percentage of DBE work that needs to be performed, or whether it's a contract-specific goal for DBE participation. Each state and local agency that has this DBE program is required to, to set its own goals. And then they have their own monitoring and reporting requirements where they pay attention to how much DBE, DBE participation is coming in, where those dollars are going, whether they're meeting their goals. So they require reporting from prime contractors who use DBEs. And then they report that up to DOT. And they also monitor compliance by prime contractors who use DBEs as well as the DBE firms themselves to make that sure that they're in compliance. Prime contractors who are awarded contracts that have a DBE participation goal are required to use good faith efforts to use DBEs as subcontractors. And then they are also subject to reporting requirements. And then the DBE firms themselves have to comply with the state and local regulations for the certification criteria, and they have reporting requirements as well. So what kind of opportunities are available in the DBE program? The majority is of the funding that comes through DOT and down to state and local agencies is for construction projects. It's about 85% of the funds is for construction, primarily for state highway and transportation agencies for highway construction projects. But it, it's not limited to construction. I think that's not always recognized that DOT dollars can go to DBEs for contracts for services, engineering, landscaping, utilities, IT, also for airport concessionaires and car rental concessions operations at airports as well through the FAA, which is a separate program, the AC, Airport Concessionaires DBE program, which basically runs with similar standards as the DBE program, but it has you know, expanded opportunities there. So really, it's a broad range of contracts that your DBE certification or your teaming partners who are DBEs may be eligible for that you should be thinking about trying to get involved with. Why should you care about the DBE program? Because there's a substantial amount of funding that comes through from DOT is distributed down to those state and local agencies and is going to those contracts that have goals to use DBEs on them every year. So there's a goal of 10% of DOT's funding to go to DBEs. This is not a quota or a set-aside minimum requirement. 
It's really a aspirational goal. And similar goals for the state and local agencies that are creating their goals are somewhere generally tend to be around the same number as well. Again, aspirational. So it's not a set goal, but that's what they're aiming for. And particularly, this is really relevant right now because of the significant investment in infrastructure that we're expecting from this bill that is likely to come through pretty soon. Well, hopefully we will see this bipartisan bill. You know, we we're hoping for some infrastructure spending under the Trump administration that ultimately didn't come through. And it looks like we have an agreement for around a $1 trillion bill to improve infrastructure across the country. I have some of the the work areas and dollar amounts here for where that funding might go to as anticipated. So it's just a matter of time to see whether that we can get that bill to become law. But so a lot of that funding is going to be earmarked, or at least it's going to have a goal that DBEs participate on those contracts. So it's a great time to look into the DBE program to get certified yourself if you're eligible or to make sure that you understand the rules for working with DBEs as a teaming partner to make sure that you're in compliance and you'll be eligible for those contracts that require DBE participation. So I'm going to hand it over to Megan to jump in and talk a little bit about the certification standards. Thanks, Becky. So obviously, we can't really talk about the DBE program without first talking about, okay, well, what do I need to do to be DBE certified? So we are going to go through just kind of some of the basic requirements and certification standards that you know, every applicant goes through. But at a high, very high level, DBEs are for-profit small business companies that are owned and controlled by socially and economically disadvantaged individuals. You may be familiar with that verbiage from SBA's 8A program, and it is similar, but it's not the same. So just because you may qualify as 8A or DBE does not necessarily mean that you'll qualify for the other. It is a different application process. There really isn't a grace for one or the other. So it's important to understand the various certification standards and what needs to be met in order to become DBE verified. I was just going to jump in and say that's that's a really good point because there are also different small business enterprise or minority business enterprise certifications that you might be able to get commercially or through state programs that are also separate from the DBE program and may have different standards. So it's very important to make sure that you're paying attention to which program you're actually applying for and and not assume that they necessarily have the same standards. So I I just wanted to add that in as well. Great point. So the first item in terms of qualification that we're going to discuss is social disadvantage. What does that mean? And really, the biggest difference between DBE and 8A is that in the DBE program, women are presumed to be socially disadvantaged. That's not a group that automatically qualifies as social disadvantage for the 8A program. So we do have a lot of companies that tend to go DBE rather than 8A just on this particular basis alone. But other members of particular groups can also qualify. It's typically the test really is, have you held yourself out as this group? Other individuals may qualify on a case-by-case basis. You may need to put together a pretty strong narrative explaining the social disadvantage that you have endured and been subject to in your lifetime. But largely, typically, most people would fall under one of these. Otherwise, it is a pretty high standard 
to prove social disadvantage, but it's not impossible. But you want to make sure that you hold yourself out as part of these groups because simply being maybe at one point you reflect, you pick one group and then you switch to another or whatnot. You want to make sure that this is really how you identify yourself as. Because if DBE raises has any questions, you may need to sometimes prove your social disadvantage. So it is important to make sure first and foremost that you qualify under one of these groups. Being born in a particular country does not necessarily make or break your social disadvantage. It's kind of fact-specific and, and person-specific in terms of how you've held yourself out. The other thing to note as it relates to the DBE program is that Lawfully admitted permanent residents can be disadvantaged, not just U.S. citizens. So you just want to make sure that you're qualifying, you meet the test. And again, like I said, the test under the DBE program is a little different than it is under the 8A program. The next factor is you have to also be economically disadvantaged. And again, this applies to the owners who are qualifying the company, not necessarily every owner if you have more than one, but those who control the day-to-day operations and who are the majority owners. As it relates to those individuals, each owner, you can try to qualify with more than one. It doesn't have to just be one person upon whose ownership or control are being relied upon, must certify that he or she has a personal net worth that does not exceed $1.32 million. So again, you may be a little bit familiar with the IDA program or this verbiage of economic disadvantage, but the calculation and exclusions and tax are very different. So it's important to understand that for purposes of the DBE program, their tax threshold is really 1.32 million from a personal net worth. And we'll talk about how you calculate that. But in order to prove this or to provide evidence to the particular DOT programs that you qualify, you have to provide a note signed notarized statement of your personal net worth. That kind of details your assets and liabilities, basically everything under the sun that you own. It's also important to note that even if your net worth, well, if your net worth exceeds the 1.32 million, there's a presumption that you're not economically disadvantaged. You may be able to try to say that my current net worth of over 1.32 million, it doesn't accurately represent your current net worth or things that may be changing in the future. But generally speaking, if you're over the 1.32, you won't be considered economically disadvantaged. You also want to keep in mind that even if technically you're under the 1.32 million, there's this test that's really referred to as the ability to accumulate substantial wealth. And what that means is it really gives the various DOT programs the ability to look at all your economic financial situation as a whole and Essentially, if your average gross income has been $350,000 or more over the last three years, or the total fair market value of your assets exceeds $6 million, then potentially you could be presumed to be not economically disadvantaged, even if you're technically under that $1.32 million personal net worth threshold. You can kind of try to rebut that by showing that maybe you had an unusual level of income. Maybe some of your earnings should be offset by losses. You've reinvested a lot of that money into the business. There's a lot of things around that you could look at. You know, does your house, is it really big? Do you have a lot of properties? Do you have a lot of cars? 
there's a lot of things that you look at. They'll look at it as a whole. So again, the 1.32 million is the good test, but it's not the end-all be-all. In order to calculate your personal net worth, you essentially take your assets and liabilities, total assets less total liabilities, but you are allowed to exclude certain items from your assets. And so essentially, it doesn't get factored into the calculation. So one of the exclusions is the individual's ownership or equity interest in the applicant firm. But if you happen to own another business or a minority owner in another business or something along those lines, your equity in that would not be excluded. You can only exclude the equity from the company that's applying to the DBE program. You can also exclude the equity in your primary residence. But again, that only relates to your primary residence. So if you own a second home, a vacation property, a rental property, anything like that, whatever the equity of that residence is would get attributed to you. And the other part is as it relates to retirement accounts or other like investment type accounts, essentially you need to include the value of those accounts if you were to take the full amount of that out right now. So essentially, if there's any taxes or interest penalties that you would incur because, let's say for a retirement account, you're withdrawing money from your 401k before you've hit retirement age, you would be subject to an additional tax penalty. So you would need to calculate how much your retirement accounts are valued at, but only if you were to take every single dollar out today, what is the amount that's left over after you've paid off the taxes and interest penalties? You also want to make sure that you're not over-reducing your net worth by contingent liabilities. So essentially, liabilities that are dependent on something happening in the future. You can't use a contingent liability such as legal claims, federal income tax, things that may or may not occur to reduce your net worth. So we've talked kind of first about, okay, what does it take to be economically disadvantaged? What does it take mean to be socially disadvantaged? But the other key part of DBE certification is the ownership and control piece by those social and economically disadvantaged individuals. So what does that mean? So in order to demonstrate ownership and to be an eligible DBE, generally speaking, the firm has to be at least 51% directly owned by socially and economically disadvantaged individuals. So direct means you as the disadvantaged owner has to hold the ownership in the entity. It cannot be through another entity. There is a slight exception for trust, but really, generally speaking, the ownership needs to be held directly. You can't be through another holding entity or other entity that you may own. You also need to own at least 51% of each class or membership interest as applicable to your type of company. So if it's a corporation, 51% of each class of the voting stock and 51% of in the aggregate of all stock. The same for you know women's liability companies as well as partnerships. Each class of the interest has to be held at least 51% by the qualifying owner or owners. The DOT programs focus very heavily on how ownership was acquired. It's a really big sticking point for them, particularly in terms of capital. So the particular Department of Transportations will look at, okay, how was this ownership acquired? Did you purchase it or did you start the company? Whose capital did you use to start the company? 
Was it through a loan? Anything like that. If you acquire the ownership through a transaction, the transaction should have been in the normal course of business on arm's length, you know, for money. Generally speaking, mere participation in activities as like an employee previously, and then the owner decided to basically shift all their company over to you is not going to be sufficient. You do have to prove if there was a specific expertise that, you know, sweat equity kind of that went into the business. But generally speaking, they're looking for actual capital contributions to start the company. You do want to make sure if it's through a loan, it's secured. If it's unsecured, it's less risky if it's through a financial institution that typically lends funds. But if you got an unsecured loan from a family member with, you know, no real repayment terms, they could find that it wasn't you know, real capital contribution to start the company. You also want to consider it of what if there were marital assets that were starting the company? This is again a big sticking point. Essentially, the spouse that that's the non-qualifying spouse has to renounce and transfer all rights in the ownership interest that they may have from the capital so that it's clear that the qualifying owner, the qualifying spouse, put their money and their time into starting the business. So it's important to look at, okay, how is this company started or acquired? And was it real and substantial? It wasn't just transferred, things like that. The one exception to kind of the transfer is essentially if the property was granted in a divorce, legal separation, or an inheritance from death. In those instances, how the ownership was acquired should not really be questioned. But generally speaking, you need to acquire your ownership with your own money. So it's important to make sure not just that you own it, but that you acquire the ownership how DBE or DOT would want to see it. Some other ownership considerations are that the owners need to be entitled to profits and losses essentially commensurate with the ownership of the farm. So we do, you know, if there's, let's say, a minority owner that's an investor that wants to get additional maybe profit sharing rights or things like that, that will not work under the DBE program because the qualifying owners need to essentially enjoy all of the benefits that come along with owning and controlling a company. So it's not just enough to show the direct 51% ownership, but there's also ownership considerations in terms of there really can't be transfer restrictions on the ability to sell your ownership. Profits and losses need to be commensurate with ownership, things like that. So it's important to really be aware of the particular ownership and control requirements so that as maybe you're forming a new company, as you're forming the company, or if you're going through and revising your company's governing documents that you know, make sure that they're in line with the regulations. And I'm going to jump in here for just a second, Megan. We did get a question about what if a majority owner is an executor of a large trust. The DBE regulations do address the situation where the DBE firm is owned by a trust, you know, that can happen for estate planning purposes, and that can be allowed in certain circumstances. Generally, if you're dealing with a revocable living trust, then the grantor, the beneficiary, and the trustee all have to be the same disadvantaged individual in order to really look past the trust ownership and to consider that disadvantaged individual to be the owner of the DBE firm. So depending on the situation, it's still possible to have the firm be owned through a trust but it really depends on how the trust agreement is set up. So you need to pay close attention to that when you're looking at how you're structuring the ownership. 
The next key part is to make sure that the qualifying owner or owners control the business. So what does that mean? It's kind of two parts. It's one on the owner and one on the company as itself. So the company on its own cannot be dependent on its relations with other firms or firms. So you can't have contractual relationships that essentially make one company so dependent on the other. The analysis really then looks at the relationship with non-DBE firms, prime contractors, employees, things like that, to see if there is any type of dependence. You also want to make sure that the socially and economically disadvantaged individuals are controlling the day-to-day and long-term operations. And what this means really is essentially the easiest way is the qualifying owner owners need to control all decisions day-to-day and long-term. DBE's regulations are not entirely explicit on whether or not any negative control rights, and when I, when I say that is essentially veto rights for a minority owner, they're not entirely clear on whether or not those are permissible, and it could just depend on the reviewing state, quite frankly. But it, the easiest way to demonstrate control is to demonstrate that the qualifying owner owners control all decisions of the company, both day-to-day and long-term. In terms of other ways to demonstrate control, the qualifying owner should be the highest officer. They could look at whether they're the highest paid or not, and they should be full-time devoted to the company. So generally speaking, there should not be any outside employment or ownership interest that would take away from their ability to control the company. So there are, of course, exceptions to every rule, and you can delegate certain responsibilities. The qualifying owner doesn't necessarily need to be the one with every single license needed to operate the business, as long as they have the management experience and control over the individuals who have those licenses. So again, it's it's very fact-specific, but generally speaking, the DBE owner needs to control. The other thing to keep in mind for DBE too is they'll look at the particular NACE codes, so the North American Industry Classification System codes of each type of industry that you perform work under. And when you are approved, they'll select particular NACE codes that you've selected as part of the application. So you have to demonstrate not just that you control the company, but that you control the company in each industry that it performs work in. In terms of the next kind of big requirement, I know they're all kind of big, but the DBE itself needs to be a small business. And what does that mean? So in order to be a small business for DBE purposes, it's actually kind of a two-step process or two calculations and two requirements. So first, the company must be a small business as that's defined by the Small Business Administration under their size standards and their affiliation rules. So it's important to understand how SBA operates and the federal government contracts in terms of what is small, what does that mean? But then another layer is for DBE that you cannot exceed the overall cap, which is currently 26.29 million in average gross receipts over the previous three fiscal years. So DOT actually issued a memo last October regarding the size calculations because you may, as you may be aware, SBA has shifted from a three-year calculation to a five-year calculation 
with the option right now to use three or five, but come January of 2022, you'll have to be using a five-year calculation. But what is small, again, for SBA is not the exact same for BBE purposes. They clarified that DOT had clarified that even though SBA is shifting to five years, it's still three years for DBE because it's required by statute under the Fixing America's Surface Transportation Act. So they don't have the authority, at least not yet, to change the calculation from three to five years. So again, your calculation for SBA is not necessarily the exact same for DOT and DBE purposes, but you still need to be small under SBA standards as well. But this cap of the 26.29 million means that even if your primary NACE code for SBA has, let's say, like a $39.5 million size standard, you would not be considered small for DBE purposes. So it's important to keep in mind that there's two separate size requirements for DBEs over and beyond just the general SBA small business. Okay, so in terms of how do I apply for the program? There is a uniform application, and essentially every participants in every state can fill out the unified certification application. The programs are governed by each state's Department of Transportation, but it utilizes the unified application. You have to provide a number of documentation, tax returns, operating agreement, bank statements, things like that to show the ownership and control aspects. Typically, they'll conduct a site visit. You know, in the world of COVID, site visits can be, you know, Zoom or over the phone, or they're just waving those all together. The process is supposed to take about 90 days. I mean, with everything in the government, it doesn't typically go that fast, but that's roughly the time that they're supposed to be processing the application. It is important that if you haven't applied for DBE before, or that you're not currently certified as a DBE, you are supposed to apply to your home state first, meaning the place where you maintain your principal place of business. So you need to start in your home state before you can then seek what's called interstate certification. So while this is like a federal program based on federal regulations, each state implements it. So once you're admitted to one state, you do then have to apply for certification in other states if you do work, you know, across state lines or so forth. But in terms of where you go first, you should first go to your principal place of business and then seek interstate certification. And generally speaking, interstate certification should kind of just be somewhat automatic. They can definitely ask for documents and they can make a determination that the original certification was erroneous or for some reason shouldn't apply in their state. Obviously, again, very fact-specific, case-specific circumstances that could lead to that. But you want to make sure that you're applying first to the right state. And then from there, what you need to provide to the other states if you're seeking to become DB certified in various states. So once you are certified as a DBE, you have to keep up that certification and maintain that certification. And you can only be DBE for as long as you continue to meet the requirements. So you do have to annually certify that through a sworn affidavit that there were no changes to your size, the disadvantage status, ownership control, or anything else that you've provided in the application that could impact your eligibility. You may need to provide supporting documentation such as tax returns, if there's been a change to your operating agreement, really anything like that. 
states do have flexibility to ask for additional documents as part of the annual certification to double check that your certification is correct. But it is important to understand that you have to continuously comply and annually certify that you continue to comply. And if you don't, you have to report any changes in circumstance throughout your participation in the program. So you are required to inform the DOT in any change circumstances that affects your size, you know, ownership, control, anything like that within 30 days of the change. And you're supposed to submit the notification through a notarized affidavit or other unsworn declaration executed under penalty of perjury. And after a review, once you initiate the notification process, essentially the particular state will conduct a review, probably an on-site visit or some other visit, and analyze whether or not you continue to meet the requirements. If you fail to make a timely notification, you could be deemed to have failed to cooperate and you could be removed from the DBE program just on your basis to report alone, even if you continue to meet the requirements. So it's very important that you are aware of this and inform the right people if something changes within your organization. One thing that I did want to just touch on quickly is we get this question a lot, whether there's special rules for entity-owned firms like there are for the 8A program. And the answer, like everything, is it depends, and it's kind of a yes-no. So DBE regulations state that a firm that is owned by an Indian tribe or NHO, a Native Hawaiian organization, may be eligible for certification. You don't get kind of a, a blanket right to certification. You still have to meet the size standards and be controlled by socially and economically disadvantaged individuals. So you may be exempted from the direct ownership type requirement, but you have to be controlled by socially and economically disadvantaged individuals. So you may need to provide the economic information of tribal members where before you, in the 8A program, you don't have to do that. So it is possible, but it is a a much more intensive application. There are special rules, though, for ANC, Alaska Native Corporation-owned firms, if three items are met. Essentially, the majority of the ANC's stock needs to be held by Alaska Natives and descendants. And then the particular subsidiary that's applying to the DBE program needs to be controlled in turn by the ANC. And then the third is that the subsidiary is already 8A certified. So this is the only instance where being 8A could possibly give you an advantage for DBE certification. But if these three items are not met, then you're subject to the same criteria as entities that are owned by Indian tribes and NHOs. So you're just kind of back to the start where you can still possibly be certified as long as you, again, meet the size standard and are controlled by socially and economically disadvantaged individuals. Thanks, Megan. Before I move on to the next part, I see we've got a couple of questions here. I just wanted to see if we could respond to those. One is asking about whether you would need to report a change in replacing vehicles or equipment. I don't think that's the type of, unless that's going to impact your overall eligibility, then you wouldn't necessarily need to report changes in the business, like changes in the business assets that you have, unless for some reason it's going to change whether you meet the size requirements. So really, DBE certifiers are looking at whether there have been substantial changes that are material to your eligibility for the program and not necessarily day-to-day changes to the business otherwise. We also had a question about 
whether a DBE would be in compliance with the control requirements if an LLC member took the position that the member had to approve all changes in an operating agreement. And that would be problematic if that member is not a disadvantaged individual upon whom eligibility is based, then having any other person or member who can control the firm in terms of having that right to veto any decisions of the firm is definitely problematic. The disadvantaged individual needs to be the one who can make those decisions without anybody else being able to prevent them from making major decisions. Now, there can be some sort of very substantial decisions that minority members can have a say in, but that's true for SBA programs. The DBE program can be even more limited in the sort of circumstances that minority members may be able to have a say in. But generally, having that member say that they have a right to approve all changes, including being able to amend an operating agreement, I mean, potentially that could be problematic. And then one other question about how outstanding stock options would be treated. I believe that they would be given present effect. So if you exercised options that you had today, what would the value of that be? And how would that impact your personal net worth? Megan, what do you think about that? I agree. I don't know off the top of my head specifically for the DBE program, but I know that at least for size, and largely the con- basically all of the other ownership and control requirements, it closely tracks many of the SBA's regulations. In SBA's programs, any stock options essentially need to be treated as exercise. So if they are exercised, would the disadvantaged owner still continue to own and control at least 51%? If the answer is yes, then stocks up, great. But if the answer is no, you likely would not be eligible at that point. Great. Thanks, Megan. So now I wanted to turn to prime contractor obligations with respect to the DBE program and what a prime contractor really, whether sometimes a prime contractor might be a DBE firm itself, or it could be a non-DBE firm who would then need to subcontract with a DBE firm or try to do that. So the primary requirement is that contracts that have DBE goals for participation may only be awarded to offerors who make good faith efforts to meet that DBE goal. And that can be done by first documenting commitments to use DBEs that are sufficient to meet the goal. So if you're a DBE yourself and you're going to self-perform the contract, there you go. You're meeting that goal. There's your good faith effort. You're the prime contractor, you're a DBE, and you're doing it yourself. So you are eligible for the contract. Alternatively, If you're a prime contractor who's not a DBE, if you have a subcontract agreement in place or a teaming agreement with a DBE subcontractor in place, and that DBE is going to do enough work to meet the goal, then that would be sufficient to show good faith effort. The other alternative is if you are unable to subcontract with a DBE, then you can still be eligible for award if you document adequate good faith efforts to meet the goal. There's a variety of ways to do that. There's no set way to do it, but you need to document your efforts to find a DBE firm to subcontract to. And this could be even if you're bidding as a DBE yourself, but you're not able to meet the goal through your own performance, then you still have to try to find a DBE subcontractor. And so some 
types of activity that you might engage in would be market research, like going to every state has a DBE directory that lists all of the DBE firms and their NAICS codes for particular types of work. So you can search in the state's DBE directory to see the DBEs and then reach out to those DBEs in the work area and try to negotiate to see if they're capable and qualified of doing the work. You can attend matchmaking events to see if you can find a teaming partner there. Good faith efforts include negotiating in good faith with DBEs. So even if you identify a potential DBE, if you're not documenting that you're actually trying to, in good faith, reach pricing or performance terms with them about how the subcontract would go forward, then you know that's not necessarily enough. Again, there's no set way that you have to or activity that you have to engage in to show good faith effort, but you need to document what you did do. And one thing that is definitely not okay is just pro forma statements that you looked for a DBE and you couldn't find one with no documentation of what that search really entailed, or just a blanket statement saying, I promise to use DBEs after I'm awarded the contract. That's not going to be sufficient either. Other ways that you could show good faith efforts could include efforts to assist interested DBEs in obtaining bonding or lines of credit or insurance if it's required under the contract. So if they can't get that themselves, if you show your efforts to help with that, that could count, as well as efforts to assist DBEs in obtaining necessary equipment, supplies, or materials or related services. So actually helping them out with those performance requirements aspects of the contract can be documentation of good faith efforts. So when you are bidding as a prime contractor, you'll be required to identify the DBE firm that's going to be awarded a subcontract, assuming that you are able to identify a DBE rather than reliance on your attempts to find a DBE without success. So if you, when you identify your DBE firm, you'll have to specifically name the DBE firm. You describe the work that they'll do along with the NAICS code, the dollar amount that will be committed to their work, a proof of commitment to use the DBE from the prime contractor, and as well as documented proof from the DBE of their intended use, the type of work that the DBE will do. So you have to show that commitment from the DBE's side as to what the DBE will be doing. So that really locks you in, in the bidding process as to how you will, which DBE you're intending to use and how you will use that DBE. There are some requirements that the states are required to include in contracts that have DBE funding. With respect to the payment terms, for example, there's a requirement for prompt payment to DBEs that the prime contractor pay the DBE within 30 days of payment from the recipient, which is a state or local agency that you're contracting with. You may also be required to follow certain ADR procedures for payment disputes that the the state may outline in your prime contract. So just something to be aware of. And then there are really strict terms on when you can terminate or substitute a DBE. So if you have identified a specific DBE in your bid or your offer, then you really are committed to using them except for specific circumstances where it may be okay to replace them or to reduce their work. But you must get the state's approval before you do that. Otherwise, it's going to be considered a material breach of the contract. So we have seen situations where a prime contractor will name a DBE 
in order to get the contract, because they're not eligible if they don't show those good faith efforts, they're not even eligible for award. But then as soon as the award comes in, they decide to go do the work themselves or use another teaming partner or an affiliate or even another DBE firm to do that work rather than the one that's named. None of those situations are okay unless that change has been reported to the state and the state has approved that switch that they've done, which also requires advance notice to the DBE, not just to the state. And when you're switching, you're required to still use good faith efforts to replace a DBE firm with another DBE firm. So to the extent that you're trying to, you can't just name the DBE and then get the award and then go with a non-DBE to replace them. You've got to still try to use another DBE if for some reason the first one that you enlisted can't do the work. So this also applies even pre-award. So once you put in that bid and you've identified the DBE you're intending to use from that time, that's where this obligation to not terminate or substitute the DBE comes into play, even if you don't have an executed subcontract with that DBE yet. So if you're a prime contractor, whether DBE or not, who has you know, submitted this bid naming a DBE, then you need to be very, very careful about the procedures that you're following proper procedures before you change what DBEs you use. And if you are a DBE firm, then you need to be aware of what your rights are with respect to not allowing that prime contractor to just kick you off. You have a lot of leverage here to not let them replace you with any other contractor. But there is a a ability to terminate or substitute a DBE where there's good cause. Some of those situations might be if the DBE voluntarily withdraws and provides written notice of that so that there's documentary evidence that the state can see that they're voluntarily withdrawing, then that's fine. If the DBE is ineligible to receive DBE credit for the work that they were going to do, that would be another reasonable basis to replace them. Or if the DBE fails to perform the work in a reasonable manner or becomes bankrupt, Those are also some valid reasons why you may be okay to terminate or replace the DBE. Okay, so as a prime contractor, complying with these obligations is really important because a failure to comply is treated as a material breach, which can have serious consequences, including termination, withholding progress payments from the prime contractor, liquidated damages, sanctions, or even on a forward-going basis, disqualifying that prime contractor from future bidding opportunities as they would be deemed non-responsible. So again, very important as a prime contractor to understand what the obligations are with respect to using your DBE partner. Okay, so next I want to talk about counting DBE participation. Just because you have a DBE contractor signed up to do 30% of the work, you know, it's not necessarily clear cut how much of what the DBE subcontractor does can be counted towards the overall goals. So I want to touch on general rules for counting the DBE's participation towards those overarching contract goals. The first key part is that on any contract, the DBE must be performing a commercially useful function which means that they have responsibility for the work that they're doing. And they're not just a pass-through who's being used for the DBE status, but not really doing the work. So they need to be performing, managing, and supervising the work. 
If it involves materials and supplies, the DBE must be responsible for negotiating price, determining quality and quantity, ordering the material. If installation is involved, they need to be doing that installation and they need to be paying for the material itself. Generally, a DBE is presumed not to be performing a commercially useful function if they don't self-perform at least 30% of whatever their subcontracted work area is, or if they subcontract more than is normal for the industry. But even if they don't meet that 30% requirement, the key is really what is normal for the industry. And if it's normal to subcontract out more than that and to not perform at least 30%, that can still be reasonable, but you need to pay attention to what those industry standards are. Okay, so the next part, assuming that the DBE is performing a commercially useful function and is truly involved and has supervision over the work that it's doing, how do you identify how much credit you'll get for the DBE's participation. And that depends on the type of work that's involved. So generally, the rule is that you'll only count the work that the DBE has committed to performing with its own forces or that it's committed to being performed with other DBE subcontractors and suppliers. With respect to what's termed bona fide services, which would include professional, technical, consultant, or managerial services, you would count the total amount of the fee or commission that's charged by the firm for those services. So that's basically, you know, whatever they're charging, prime contractor, that counts towards the goal. For construction and other contracts, other than the bona fide services contracts, you count the portion that will be performed by the DBE's own forces. And that includes the cost of supplies and materials that will be obtained by the DBE for the work of the contract except for supplies and equipment that the DBE subcontractor may purchase or lease from the prime contractor or its affiliates. So it's not just you know what's paid for the, the labor that the DBE is providing, but also for those supplies and materials. So for materials and supplies, where the DBE is providing the materials and supplies, it can get a little bit trickier. And again, it depends on the DBE status as to whether the value of those materials and supplies will be counted towards the DBE goal. If the DBE is the manufacturer of the material or supplies that are being provided, then you can count 100% of the value of those materials and supplies. If the DBE is not a manufacturer, but is a regular dealer, then you only count 60% of the value of the materials and supplies. And then you have to go through a whole analysis of whether the DBE is a regular dealer, which is generally, do they have an established business line in supplying this type of product? If it's not something that they generally spend all that time in, then they won't count as a regular dealer. They might be more of just a broker, a reseller who doesn't normally resell that type of activity, that type of material or supplies. In which case, only the fee or the commission that they charge as the broker would count towards the DBE goal. So that's a relevant consideration when you're thinking about using a DBE. Well, how much of the amount of the subcontract with the DBE firm will you actually be able to count towards the DBE goal? And then, of course, if you subcontract work to a DBE and the DBE then subcontracts a portion or all of that work to a non-DBE firm, whatever is subcontracted to a non-DBE will not be counted. I'm going to let Megan close this up for us. Thank you. One thing we did want to quickly touch on is we do get a lot of questions about, okay, well, what about mentor-protege, joint ventures? How can we use that to our advantage? 
in the DBE realm. And there is a formal DOT mentor-protege program. It's administered by DOT's OSTABU, the Office of Small and Disadvantaged Business Utilization. And one of the benefits under that program is potential joint venturing as well as just other mentoring and general guidance. However, each state also has the ability to develop their own program and set different kind of requirements and so forth for that and how they'll recognize it and whether you can use it on their projects and how that works. So it is just important to be mindful of it. As the DBE regulations don't expressly recognize SBA's mentor-protege program. So we often get a lot of questions, well, can I JV under my SBA MP and go after projects that way? And generally speaking, I mean, the answer is no, and it's not expressly authorized. So it is something to just keep in mind. There are separate state-sponsored mentor-protege programs, but it is separate from SBA's mentor-protege program. And if we didn't get to your questions, feel free to shoot either Jackie or I an email and we'll get back to you. Yeah, I just want to say, I know we've covered a lot of material here. The regulations can be pretty confusing. We are here to help. So feel free to shoot us questions. If you are interested in the DBE program, we often help contractors with their initial applications, helping them get certified. We help along the way if they get their certification gets denied. And we can also help whether you're a DBE or a non-DBE prime contractor with any questions about your performance requirements. It can be pretty confusing. So we're here to help clarify any of those questions. So thank you everybody for joining us today. We appreciate it. And again, feel free to reach out to us with any additional questions you may have. Thank you. This podcast is a Polero Maza production and music credits go to bensound.com. Please subscribe and hear more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.